my name is Adam Eisgrow. I'm delighted to be here. In essence, it's a bit of a, uh, a homecoming, although uh, there certainly have been many contacts uh, between myself and ALA since I had the privilege of serving as uh, uh, Miriam Nisbet's predecessor as legislative counsel for the organization in the mid-1990s when small processes like WIPO and CONFU and other allegedly uh, uh, august processes were going on. Uh, I want to thank Jim Neal for um, helping to make the conference possible and for uh, Rick Weingarten and Carrie Russell, particularly of ALA's OITP, for involving me in the uh, planning process. Originally, as many of you may know, uh, you were not going to be subjected to me in any upfront fashion, and I uh, apologize and extend my condolences for the change of plans. Uh, Congressman Rick Boucher, uh, in all seriousness, uh, sends his profound regrets that a, a last-minute but obviously very significant scheduling conflict prevented him from being here today. Mr. Boucher, along with Congressman Doolittle of California, uh, in the last Congress was the author of H.R. 107, not an accidentally chosen number for the bill, uh, to help restore some fair use um, balance and emphasis to copyright law in the previous Congress, and is this year, as you heard made reference to uh, earlier, the author of H.R. 1201, also not an accidentally chosen number, uh, which uh, seeks, uh, although with some small changes that I, I know uh, Mr. Von Lohmann took some issue with, um, uh, seeks to do much of the same thing. Um, Jim last night uh, used a, a strong term. He, he said, this is war. And although I think many of us recoil from the, uh, both the metaphor and certainly from the real thing, uh, I have to say, uh, speaking as somebody involved, uh, on and off, and increasingly these days on with copyright policy. Uh, that is metaphorically certainly what we are globally engaged in, uh, pun intended, as you've heard uh, and we'll hear some more about. So if we can stick with that uh, metaphor, although it's a little bit jarring, um, let's take a look at uh, what we need to do to go forward. If you're going to wage war, you ought to win. Um, and first determine what your definition of winning is. So consider this for, your moment, uh, for the moment in the next maybe 60 moments or so, uh, with lots of time built into that for questions at the end. Uh, war college, if you will, or maybe even war grad school, since we're on an August University's campus. If we're going to go to war, we have some theory to look at first. You don't just immediately deploy uh, personnel and material and toss them in harm's way. Uh, you need some, to do some practical work. And fortunately, we have with us two very senior special ops officers. I'll pay for that. Mark McCarthy, uh, I'm, I'm proud to say a, a longtime and, and good friend, and John Band, uh, who uh, will accept my apologies for claiming the same thing up. Um, John is a, a graduate, as you've seen briefly in the bios of uh, uh, Harvard. Uh, don't hold that against him, please. Uh, Yale Law School. Uh, and was a fellow trench mate uh, going back uh, years and years on WIPO, on the Uniform Commercial Code uh, efforts, uh, dealing with uh, shrink wrap licensing, on database protection, uh, and certainly on the DMCA and everything that's gone since. Uh, John, uh, in addition to being a, a practiced uh, IP litigator, is currently counsel to the Library Copyright Alliance, uh, a, a group of several uh, library associations uh, with pooled resources. And we're delighted to have him here today. Uh, Mark McCarthy uh, is a uh, PhD holder in philosophy from Indiana, has a master's in economics, taught at Indiana, Maryland, Georgetown's uh, communications, culture, and technology program. And uh, I'm not sure they've forgiven him for involving me in 
spending uh, one course in that program as well, but it was fun. And he worked for a, a relatively little-known and not particularly influential but, but bright guy in Congress, this uh, up-and-coming fellow named John Dingell from Michigan, who for years and years chaired the Commerce Committee uh, till the majority uh, changed and may still think that he does and may actually be right. Um, they still call him Mr. Chairman. Yes, they do. Um, Mark also uh, headed up ABC's uh, Washington office, ABC Camp Cities, and is now a senior public policy vice president uh, with Visa. In the interest of full disclosure, and, and we'll get right down into this shortly, uh, my own uh, client interests are not why I'm here today, although they may allow a little bit of perspective. Uh, I represent uh, a couple of companies that very few people have heard of, uh, Grokster and Morpheus, uh, along with a few others in a trade association called P2P United, uh, and I've been back in the copyright war trenches uh, to stick with our metaphor uh, in conjunction with file sharing uh, specifically, and that, that may uh, allow me to chime in a couple of uh, political war stories, if nothing else, along the way. So let's get to it, uh, and let's get real. That would be Operation Real, Rights, Exceptions, and Libraries. So the AM security briefing, or I guess PM security briefing, would ordinarily start with uh, some reconnaissance. And we've uh, gotten some photo intelligence from various altitudes that I think it's important to share at the outset before we turn to our special ops officers for some more detailed analysis. The view of the battlefield from our eyes in the sky at 100,000 feet reveal, as uh, we have already had reports uh, reliably, I think, from the field, one agent we will know uh, only as Fred to protect his identity has reliably and I think lucidly reported on the global marshalling of content owner resources uh, with a focus on uh, potentially uh, global hegemony. That's not Fred's words. That's, that's what the analysts at the CIA have told us. We can determine whether or not it's the right word choice. We have also heard from Rick Weingarten, uh, also a code name, that locomotives uh, uh, are on the move. From 50,000 feet, the intelligence is a little bit more detailed. Uh, we seem to have specific uh, weapons platforms being mobilized. Carrie uh, uh, Russell is another covert operative who has talked about this. Uh, a shadowy figure known as Alawash, um, I'm not sure what that stands for, uh, report uh, all conclusively from 50,000 feet that the weapons being deployed are largely uh, technological and to some degree political, but you can't really tell from 50,000 feet what the politics part of it is. At the 25,000 feet, uh, an agent uh, covertly known uh, as New York Times columnist and author Tom Friedman, has reported perhaps the most astonishing bit of news that we can see from the sky, uh, as, as much as we can uh, when we jump on a plane, and that is the, the curvature of the Earth that one would ordinarily notice from 25,000 feet seems to be missing. And for lots of reasons that Mr. Friedman has described in his much-publicized book, and as our panelists are about to turn to, that would be citing the guy with the philosophy and the economics degree, he said pregnantly, the world appears to be flat, or at least flattening. And that has very significant potential implications, uh, both in reality and metaphorically, uh, for all of us and what we are about. So without further ado, uh, thank you to Mark McCarthy and John Van for being here. Mark, flat earth time. Uh, thanks for that nice introduction. I'll, I'll try to get to the flat earth in a, in a little bit. Uh, but, but first, um, uh, a disclaimer, uh, the, uh, I'm, I'm part of the, the, the substitution for, uh, for Rick Boucher, 
uh, a lot of ways in which the two of us are different. Uh, for one, he's a member of Congress, but for another, he's a, he's a, a staunch, uh, vigorous, articulate, and thoughtful defender of the fair use perspective. And uh, while I understand the perspective, it's, uh, it, I'm not appearing before you today as a fair use advocate. I'm, I'm a business lobbyist, although uh, Adam did blow some of my, uh, my cover with the, all that academic background stuff. Uh, the comments that I want to give you today are, are really, really designed to give you some insight in, into, into Washington and the congressional process. And, and, and that probably will provide you with some ways to think about organizing to promote uh, your own fight on, on, on fair use, but it's important to recognize it's not necessarily uh, my fight. Although, um, uh, in, the, in, in the theme of uh, allies and friends, uh, we, we might find ourselves to be allies on particular fights as, as we go forward. So, uh, with that as, as my disclaimer, um, I'm going to do uh, three or four things today. That, uh, uh, I'll tell you a little bit, uh, remind you really of some of the basic economics of, uh, of information, goods, and services, talk a little bit about the communications and computer revolution, and then talk about the consequences of all that, which is where we get to the flat earth, uh, and then some of the intellectual property and copyright issues in front of Congress, and then John's going to take it from there and do some stuff on uh, the, we're going down to lower and lower levels, as you can tell. Um, uh, I, you need to talk a little bit about, about um, information goods and services for a lot of reasons. If you're talking copyright, you know, uh, what does copyright regulate? It, it re regulates information. So you've got to know a little bit about what the, the economics there is. But also my, my sense, and this is a theory I've got, and I think it's, it's largely confirmed by practical experience in Washington, is that, is that you know, the understanding the basic economics of the industries that are involved in a particular political discussion uh, will really give you a handle on, on how the fights are going to develop, what are the dynamics, and so on. Um, the, you can focus too much on, on, on politics and process while ignoring the underlying uh, economics. Um, I, I do think you've got to pay attention to the politics and the process. That's an element of it. But if you miss the economics, I think you might miss some of the underlying and driving forces. So with that as background, um, information goods, you all know what they are. Uh, we talked about them in the earlier sessions today, recordings, movies, TV shows, video games, computer software. Uh, those things have to be produced and distributed, uh, and the, uh, the, the salient economic features of, of, of producing and distributing those goods uh, are first, you've got huge scale economies. Uh, it, it takes a lot of money to produce one of these things. Uh, and then it's lower cost to reproduce it, to, to actually get many copies of, of the, same, the same item. There's often large distribution costs uh, in, involved in it, um, there are uh, what are called network effects in format. That is, the more people use a particular format, the more popular it, it becomes. Uh, pricing in this market is not based on marginal cost. It's, it's value of, uh, of service pricing. They try to find out where people will pay the most money in price to that. Um, it's a hit-driven business market so far. I mean, that's not, that's not intrinsic to the industry, but it's part of their current business model. What does all this mean? there's a tendency towards concentration in the, in the industries that produce and distribute the information goods. A second part of the, uh, of the information world is what I'm calling, and there's no particular magic to this word, the information services, the infrastructure people. Uh, there it's the you know, telecom, internet, uh, broadband. It's also the data processors, uh, the, the data miners, and so on. And they have um, uh, similar economics, uh, also huge-scale economies. It's, it, it takes a lot of fixed costs to build and construct a processing or communication system, but then it takes a small amount of variable cost to actually operate that system. Uh, there are uh, direct network effects in these communication systems, 
you know, the more people who are on a communications network, the more valuable it is. Pricing is the same. It varies from marginal cost. Once again, there's a tendency to concentration in that kind of market. So what, 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 do, what do we derive from this very, very quick review of the economics? The basic point is that you're dealing with large companies operating in oligopolistic markets, and, and whether you provide the info or whether you're operating to, to provide the communication services that transmit it, you're going to be a large company operating in an oligopolistic market. And that gives you coherent business interests. It gives you common policy objectives. And in the discussion that's going to follow, most importantly, it gives you some political clout to sort of make things happen or stop things from happening uh, in the political dimension. Uh, the second topic, and this is, again, reminding you of stuff that you, you already know, uh, the communications and computer revolution. What, what does this mean? Um, electronic communications are now global, and they're cheap. Um, the local broadband uh, development is trying to solve the last mile problem. Uh, the U.S., it turns out, is 16th in that particular area, and maybe we should be doing a little bit better. But it's clearly the kind of thing that is moving forward. Computing power continues to get uh, better and better and becomes less expensive. Uh, the implication of this is that uh, all information can be put in digital form and can be distributed worldwide. All right. Consequences. The most important, most profound consequence of this is something that uh, I really don't have much to say about. And what, you know, it's not really directly relevant uh, to this conference, but, but for ourselves, for, for, you know, for our lives, for our future, for our kids, the, the, the implications of this for the labor market are, are really, really very unsettling and very, very profound. Uh, label markets will become global. Um, in this new world, uh, capital is going to be mobile, and of course, people are not as mobile as capital. Uh, no one's suggesting that, that uh, U.S. workers can pick up and move to a foreign country in order to take advantage of the new job opportunities there. Uh, so what, what that's going to mean is that U.S. wages are going to find a global floor that's well below the current uh, level of U.S. wages. Um, People talk about education and training as a way of meeting that particular challenge, but you know, workers in other countries are just as smart and just as productive as, as we are, um, but they are, in many cases, substantially cheaper. Um, and that drives the economics of the global labor market. The, the message um, for this group really is that in the labor market context, uh, any countervailing power to that fundamental economic uh, um, dynamic has got to be global in character. So if you're thinking about intellectual property or copyright, the idea of thinking of it as a national problem is clearly not in the direction that the rest of the world is going to be going. A second implication, um, there's going to be continued pressure uh, to liberalize, uh, privatize, reform uh, international telecommunications markets. Uh, this is coming mostly from the information service providers, the infrastructure providers that, that I talked about before. They have a fundamental interest. Uh, and their fundamental interest is to keep the government out of the design and pricing of their systems. Uh, that will continue. I don't have much more to say about that than that in, in the international dimension, but it's going to have a political implication here in the United States that we want to pay attention to. Uh, three other items. That there's a challenge to the content industry that I'm going to talk about a little bit. Uh, regulation of the Internet becomes pretty important. And, of course, the issue that's important for this this conference, uh, IP2 has become a, um, a, global, a global matter. Uh, the, people have talked at great length about the challenge that uh, these developments have for the information content in industry. Let me just remind you what they are. Uh, it, they create the possibility of perfect copies at almost no cost. 
the distribution of, uh, of these copies can be done at, 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 at very, very low marginal cost. And this creates challenges for the existing uh, business models and market structure. We've all heard the discussion on the recording industry, how do you beat free? You know, wh why do you need the major record labels, you know, when distribution is so cheap? Uh, maybe you need them for promotion. I, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the, I read that the new Star Wars budget for promotion is $100 million just for promotion, and they'll make it back and more in the first weekend. So, but that's, that's their model, you know, hits-driven model, uh, you know, large distribution companies. They may be trying to adapt with an iTunes-like uh, response with digital music players and so on. Uh, but clearly, they've got to adapt in, in some fashion. Uh, but one of the ways they're adapting, of course, is by uh, turning to intellectual property laws to try to help them out in their, in their fight. Uh, let me make a quick comment on one of the other implications of this, regulation of the Internet. Uh, you, you'll probably remember uh, you know, Ralph Barton Perry, you know, said that many years ago that you know, governments are just, you know, flesh and, and steel and we don't need them. We found a new home of mind, which is the Internet, right? And he capitalized the word mind, if you remember. Um, but he, he didn't pay enough attention to the fact that this new home of mind has to be embodied in, in real things. It's got to be embodied in servers and routers and physical communications channels. And believe it or not, local authorities think they can regulate those things. Uh, and so there is, I think, a movement away from thinking that the Internet is somehow different from and exempt from this idea of regulation. You all know about the Yahoo case and, you know, the, the kind of First Amendment challenges that that has brought. Um, the, the, the major problem in figuring out what to do with the Internet is jurisdiction. I mean, if there's a transaction in the Internet, is it the merchant's country that has the law? Is it the customer's country? Uh, businesses tend to say, I, I'd like it to be the... The country where, where, where I live, it's that law that I want to have applied. Uh, most of the consumer advocates and the consumer protection people want it to be the customer's law. John can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think I remember in, in, in one of the copyright suits against peer-to-peer, -peer, uh, the copyright owners claimed that it, it should be the law of the customer that prevails, which is sort of in contrast to the normal business position. But uh, I think they, they went in that direction to try to establish uh, the rationale that the peer-to-peer -peer guys were violating copyright law. Uh, we have an interest in, in this regulation of the Internet issue that uh, ultimately will, believe me, dovetail with some of the discussion about intellectual property. Uh, payment systems are global. We, we've got a system that goes around the world, so does MasterCard. Um, and so increasingly people are looking to us in the United States uh, in the legislative context to be the Internet enforcers, uh, whether it's Internet gambling or pornography or tobacco or alcohol, pharmacies or copyright, People want us to be the people who will enforce uh, any problems that arrive in the Internet. You, you may or may not have heard about the Perfect Ten case. Uh, I'm not going to go into the details, but uh, Perfect Ten uh, sued us and other uh, payment companies for copyright infringement. Uh, their, their intellectual property, so to speak, their, their porn site had been, um, had been uh, uh, pirated, and the pirated image had been put up on another website and, and sold uh, of course, the transactions were paid for by using the payment cards, the Visa cards and the MasterCards. So they thought we were uh, secondarily liable for the infringement. The courts held under current uh, uh, interpretation of secondary liability that we were not liable. It didn't take them very long to reach that result, but they, uh, they did reach it, uh, and we're reasonably comfortable that we're protected against those kind of suits under, under existing law. Um, okay, uh, on IP as a, as a global issue. Uh, we talked a lot about that in the earlier discussions. 
there, there's WIPO, there's a Berne Convention. Uh, probably most intriguingly, there's the, the trade dimension to this now. There's the, the various trade agreements, free trade agreements between individual countries. There's the TRIPS provision that raise all this. Um, there's continued pressure, in effect, to uh, reform domestic laws to allow global IP protection uh, consistent with the globalization of the communications and information infrastructure. Um, it's, it's being raised as a global issue. Uh, I have here a, 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 a flyer for a new book by Pat Choate, who is, may, many of you may remember Pat Choate, he was Ross Perot's uh, vice presidential running mate. Before that, he was a policy analyst for TRW. Uh, and he's at, a, at this group called CELI, the Congressional Economic Leadership Institute, which we're actually members of. Uh, but he's also doing a, a show and tell at the uh, New America Foundation. And he's got a book, it's called Hot Property, The Stealing of Ideas in the Age of Globalization. And uh, his book is being introduced uh, with introductory remarks by Congressman Frank Wolf from, from Virginia, Republican from Virginia. Um, the theme of it is that uh, global IP protection is crucial for U.S. competitiveness. If we're going to defend ourselves in global economic uh, competition, we have to have stronger and more vigorous uh, intellectual property laws. Uh, so he's pushing this as, as an issue in the think tanks down in, in Washington with some uh, congressional blessing from Representative Frank Wolf. So um, I think coming down to a still lower level, um, th there's going to be further congressional action on intellectual property issues. Um, uh, just to run through the list that I've got, uh, there's going to be fallout from the Grokster case, uh, patent reform, if Rick Boucher were here, he'd talk a little bit more about that. I think you'll see stuff on telecom legislation you might want to pay attention to. The, the, uh, the broadcast flag decision that uh, Gigi talked about earlier today, the, the decision has been made in court. Uh, probably by the end of today, there'll be uh, draft legislation up in the Congress you know, suggesting that maybe what the court did was wrong. Um, CAFTA, people talked about the, the implications of CAFTA. Um, but before I get into the substance of this, I, I just want to make uh, some generalized remarks on lobbying IP issues. Um, uh, Fred was talking earlier about making new law, and there are obviously several ways of doing that. Um, one is to go to court and, and get a favorable court decision. Uh, the other way is, go, is to go through Congress. I think we can talk later on in the discussion about which is the more desirable or attractive way of doing it. Um, but if you do go the, the congressional route, you, uh, you, you do need to sort of get a sense of who is on which side. The basic dichotomy of users versus owners is there. But, uh, you know, you, you can need, need some allies, uh, as you know, and you've been down this road before. Um, where, where are the infrastructure providers? Where are the telecom companies? Where are the Internet companies? Um, the, the, as I mentioned, their fundamental interest in this world is to keep the government from regulating their systems and from regulating their pricing. I, I don't think they'd be comfortable with the idea of intellectual property owners using the government as a way of, of, of getting the government involved in their system design. Uh, and we've seen that in earlier efforts that they tend to line up in that direction. Uh, there was some discussion of Google earlier. Uh, you probably don't know, but the, you should know that the, they just hired a DC representative, a guy named Alan Davidson, who used to be with CDT, and uh, I think he'd be sympathetic to the issues that you guys are going to be raising. Uh, but clearly, this need for, for vigilance and activism in this area, just some examples, um, the, the extension of copyright terms. I mean, this, you know, the, when Disney needed that, they didn't go to court. I mean, they, they went to the Hill. Uh, Michael Eisner was engaged. He, he went up there. He tried to get people to do what he wanted. He, I mean, this is, a, this is a country where people who have issues and want them resolved can perfectly legitimately go to Congress and, and ask them to address them, and he did. 
the compulsory license for, uh, uh, for satellites, uh, this is an issue where the television networks were involved and they tried to minimize their damage. They weren't passive or quiet about it. They went up there and exerted their First Amendment rights in that area. You all know about the DMCA and the anti-circumvention uh, issues that were raised there. Adam was involved heavily in that fight in 1998. Uh, so there, there are lots of things that need to be done. A couple of you know, war stories from those days, DMCA and satellite radio. Uh, if you're not paying attention, strange things can happen to you. Uh, there was a performance right for internet radio that was inserted into the DMCA in negotiations between the recording industry and the webcasters, all well and good. It covered satellite radio, too. Satellite radio wasn't sitting in the room, but they were covered by that particular provision. Well, it, it turns out that the lawyers and lobbyists for, and I was one of the lobbyists, uh, for the uh, satellite radio industry, you know, found out about it. They were able to get back into the process and negotiate a considerably better deal. If you're not paying attention, strange things can happen to you. Uh, the INDUCE Act. I mentioned the Perfect Ten case before. Um, well, legislation in 2004 created a new cause of action for intentionally inducing copyright infringement. Well, that, that covered financial services companies. It covered payment systems, uh, as well as the intended target of peer-to-peer. Of, of -peer. Uh, and with the Perfect Ten uh, precedent in front of us, we clearly wanted to be carved out from that. They, the lawyers and lobbyists for these groups were up there doing their work. I was up there trying to get ourselves carved out. It's a, it's a long, complicated, difficult process. John was helping us in that, in that particular fight. Um, the, uh, it, I think I've still got an email from Senator Hatch's staff saying, if that's all you want, okay. Uh, I think I'll save that for, because I think there's going to be another round of that. Um, but again, once, the point there is that, that without the vigilance, without the activism, you know, things can happen that uh, will adversely affect you. Um, threats and opportunities, let me just go through some of them. Obviously, you have to choose your battles as well as choosing your fora. Um, and this is just, there's no magic to this list. Um, going back to, uh, to Grokster, you know, that's going to come back no matter what happens in the court case, which is expected to be decided in June. Um, what's going to happen to substantial non-infringing uses? Is, is there going to be a legislative battle there where you'll have it, uh, a dog on the fight? I think you will. Um, one issue you may not be focused on, but it is the, a, a big issue these days, and if Rick, Rick Boucher were here, he'd be talking about it, patent reform. Um, the you know, businesses are very worried about uh, weak patents, uh, cases that are brought against them where there's you know, no real operating business who's bringing the case, but they have uh, a weak patent that they bring. Um, telecom legislation, this may not be on your radar screen, uh, but I think Gigi Sohn over at Public Knowledge is working in this area. Um, will broadband be open, affordable, and competitive? What about unlicensed uh, wireless spectrum? Will it be available? Will, will municipal uh, um, operations be allowed to compete? Um, this pro probably wouldn't amend the Copyright Act directly, but it surely speaks to the same issues of openness and access. You might have an interest in pursuing that. CAFTA, uh, if there are IP provisions in there that you don't like, you know, why aren't you there in the debate? Um, I think broadcast flag, as I mentioned before, is going to come back. So you've got some issues that, uh, that you have to deal with. Uh, when you think about how to do this, uh, you know, you're going to need your lawyers and lobbyists as well as other resources. Uh, you need the eyes and ears. You need people to open the doors for you. You need the expertise on the process, which committees are involved, after all. It used to be just judiciary. It's not. It's judiciary. It's commerce. You know, when, when we were involved in it, we tried to get the banking committees involved in it. So it goes all over the place. You need the substantive expertise to, you know, understand the detailed threats. You need, you need uh, drafting effective alternatives. You need someone to be in the negotiations to talk through 
uh, a, a possible compromise. Uh, that all, re you know, you all, you need the lawyers and lobbyists to, to pay attention to that stuff. And there, there are lots of people in Washington who can do that kind of stuff. Peter, John, Adam, they're all uh, available, and they all do good work. Uh, you need think tanks. Um, you know, the, the Pat Chode is working with think tanks down in Washington to make sure his message is out there. Um, you know, these discussions are great, but this is internal discussions. You need to be out there talking to the, the, the general policy community in Washington about the issues. You've got allies in the public interest groups. Obviously, you know this, you know, GG and public knowledge, the EFF folk, uh, their allies. You need grassroots. American Library Association's got great grassroots. You've got to use it. Um, there's a lot more uh, to say about these issues, but you know, I, I think I'll, I'll stop now, and uh, uh, I look forward to, uh, to you know, carrying on the discussion, to questions and comments, and, and thank you very much for having me here. I, I look forward to the discussion. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, Mark. With that uh, terrific framing of the issues and the continued drop from 100,000 feet down to the ground, and I promise you we will get into the trenches, uh, hopefully with your active participation in the Q&A. Uh, John Bann, take us to 10,000 feet and below. Okay, thank you very much, Adam. Uh, and uh, I thank the organizers for putting together this terrific conference. Um, it's interesting that uh, Mark mentioned Pat Choate. We had not uh, choreographed that, but, it, but in many ways, you know, Pat Choate, um, even though he's not a major figure in, in, in the uh, IP debate per se really in many ways is sort of a, represents a, a pivotal change in the thinking in this area. And so what I'd like to do is uh, uh, talk about some of the, briefly just some of the historic changes over the past 15, 20 years in the IP landscape in DC. And, and, and yeah, interestingly, Pat Cho does play an interesting role in that changing landscape. If you look back to the early 80s, um, IP legislation, IP policy was really, you know, kind of a backwater. There were just a small number of people who were dealing with this. Um, uh, you had the Copyright Office, you had the, uh, the IP subcommittee on the House side, and, and the uh, IP, also then there was an IP subcommittee on the Senate side. But even then, even for the House IP subcommittee, for, for example, that wasn't their main area of jurisdiction. That wasn't their main interest, area of interest. They also had to do with court, the administration of courts and the judiciary. I had a friend who was on the staff of the House IP subcommittee at the time, and you know she viewed having to deal with IP as a distraction, as an annoyance. That you know she was really there to work on the courts, uh, and and the, you know in her view was shared by other members of uh, of the subcommittee to some extent, other other staff members that that wasn't you know that there were you know they just happened to have some jurisdiction over this industry. Uh, and, you know, they were the kind of annoying people who were always asking for stuff. But really what they were all about, their main activity was, was dealing with the courts. Um, you had a chairman on the IP, on the House side, uh, Kastenmeier, who, who was interested in IP. But, again, that was not his only interest. And he also brought, again, this is an oversimplification, but he brought a somewhat skeptical view to the process, meaning he wasn't, he wasn't. He didn't see his job as being, you know, as promoting the interests of of the content community. Uh, he saw, you know, this was part of his jurisdiction. He was going to come out with balanced IP laws that were for the good of the public. And so his, I think, the way he saw it is that yes, he wanted to protect 
intellectual property owners to the extent that they deserve protection. He wanted to protect users to the extent they, their interests needed to be protected, and he wanted to achieve a degree of balance. And I think part of it could come out of his own, perhaps his own legal training. Uh, uh, if you sort of look at what, what, what people were learning in law schools and the general view of IP until, uh, you know, even before it was even called IP, before we called it intellectual property, it was copyright patents and trademarks. Uh, there was this kind of a bit of a skepticism of it. It was a legal monopoly, of course, and therefore needed to be, you know, it was, it was something that was tolerated or you needed to give it, but only as much as necessary. I mean, there was sort of a general uh, suspicion, uh, both in the government and outside, about, about giving too much protection. So, and then in terms of that's within the government, outside the government you had, again, a relatively small number of stakeholders. You had the entertainment industry, of course, who wanted more protection. You had the libraries, uh, but, but that was about it. You didn't have many, many other constituencies who cared about the process, who cared about what was going with IP. It was, a, again, a relatively uh, small group of people. Now, that changed dramatically in the late 80s and into the 90s, and there were many factors that, that, that came into play. A lot of it had to do with Pat Cho. Uh, because it was in the late 80s and the early 90s that, that there was this new perception about America's changing role in the global economy. And there was this incredible fear, again, remember, think, try to remember back to the late 80s, there was this incredible fear of Japan Inc. And Pat Choate wrote a book, I believe it was called Japan Inc., or he was one of the people who wrote books about, you know, this, the, the, the terrible threat of Japan and how Japan was going to, in essence, conquer the world. And that we, you know, they were going to take over all manufacturing and they were taking all economic leadership. And we were, you know, coming into, we were falling into second place, if not third place. And so there was then, what I, then there was a sense of what is our economic, what is our comparative advantage from a uh, economic perspective and a global trade perspective. And there was a sense of our, our global, our comparative advantage is in our intellectual property, that they might be able to, manufacture it better and cheaper, but we have the good ideas. And so that is our advantage. And, and so then there was this growing sense that we needed to increase the level of intellectual property protection to protect our comparative advantage in the global economy. And then there was a sort of, you know, Bruce, Bruce Lehman, who, who was the uh, commissioner of the Patent and Trademark Office, and as he made clear that he was the chief IP spokesman for the Clinton administration, and so on and so forth. I mean, he very clearly said that there was this direct correlation between uh, increased IP protection, increased international trade, and therefore increased jobs. I mean, that that was, and, and he, he, he articulated that very clearly. And no one in the early 80s would have thought to talk about it in those terms. But by the time, again, with the sphere of Japan, Inc., and the change in the nature, or the, again, I don't know how, whether the reality was any different, but certainly the perception was different. That, that we needed to protect our, sort of the, the crown jewels of the American economy was our IP. And all of a sudden, that, that, the number of players and the level of importance certainly increased dramatically. Uh, another factor, of course, had to do with the, the digital technology and the content industry, even though they had always been concerned about infringement. But certainly, if you look into the, the 1976 Act, when, they, when the New Copyright Act was was farming. The person, the people they were worried about infringing were 
competitors, other publishers, other, other movie companies. It was, it was competition. It was infringement by competitors, not the rampant infringement by the users. That's obviously something that is a, a change brought about by the, digital, by the digital technology. And so the level of concern, the level of anxiety on behalf of the content companies went up significantly during the 90s. So you have the policymakers more worried about protecting uh, our standing in the world, you have, you have the content companies more worried about protecting their bottom line because of the changing technology. And so you, this, this mix, all these, these different factors came together so that now in, in, in certainly, in a sense, it came to, the, to a head in the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. You had all these new players. You also had new corporate players. Um, you had, as, as Mark was mentioning, you have the Internet service providers. They sort of come into play for the first time. You also have the consumer electronic companies. They were involved to somewhat, you know, to, a, to a narrow degree in the 80s, but again, as they, during the course of the 90s, they became more and more involved too. And, and as a result, when you, you get to the late 90s, you have a completely changed landscape. You have far more attention in Congress on IP. So it's not just, so, so for the IP subcommittee, it's not the secondary or tertiary area of interest, it's their primary area of interest. You then also have, as new players in Congress got involved, uh, uh, especially the internet, the internet companies and in, 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 uh, the telecom companies they're often affiliated with, they bring in the, the, the commerce committees. So, so, so you not only have sort of this backwater within subcommittees within judiciary committee, but now you have the, the commerce committees involved on the House and Senate side. Uh, you also have, uh, within the administration, again, it was usually just the copyright office, which is technically part of Congress, but, but, but the rest of the administration would always defer to Congress now. With Bruce Lehman, it was the PTO. But then other parts of the government got more involved as they saw that this was an issue of greater importance. USTR devoted more resources and more attention. And, and as a result, what you end up with is, is you, bring, you basically come to, the, to where we are now where there are a lot of players. You have, again, certainly the content industry who is more focused on this issue than ever before, devoting more and more resources than ever before. You have the libraries who have remained uh, focused and concentrating on this issue all along. But then you have, as I mentioned, all sorts of other new players. On the sort of on the public interest side, you have uh, consumer groups who had not been involved before. You have other public advocacy groups. Um, you, have, you have the internet service providers. Um, and, and all this ends up a much, much more complex, high-profile, contentious area. So it was before, again, a small number of people, everyone knew each other. They all went off together to the Copyright Society meetings up in uh, Lake Sagamore and worked things out. I mean, now it's, it's, it's uh, a much more contentious, uh, politicized, political kind of environment. Uh, and again, it's just interesting now that Pat Shedd has come out with yet another book uh, that, that's sort of not talking about just Japan Inc. anymore, but now sort of the next step about how we need to increase our intellectual property protection again to preserve our, our place in the global economy. Um, I'd like to just turn it to make a couple of brief comments about sort of what this means in terms of pra in practical terms, uh, in terms of uh, lobbying these issues, and then we can get more into it um, uh, during the Q&A. First, uh, first of all, uh, just to continue the analogy, the warfare analogy, 
and, and, and Adam talked about being in the trenches, and, and that is very accurate. Uh, lobbying is trench warfare, and, and, and it can't be overstated the importance of kind of being there and staying there. And trench warfare is sort of you know, very bloody, but it's very slow. It takes forever, and there's very, very little progress. Um, sometimes there's no progress, and sometimes that's okay. So you may, sometimes the objective is to stop preventing the other guy from progressing. But, but that's one of the things that's very hard. That's why, perhaps more than any other reason, why certain large entrenched economic interests have the big advantage over the public interest community uh, and the public generally is the trench warfare nature, the very slow nature of the legislative process. Um, uh, you, and especially it's interesting sort of to contrast that also, especially to the academic, the academy and people with academic interests that you'll have sometimes academicians sort of flip through this area, flip through, they, 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 look, at, they look at an issue um, and they see it's interesting, they write their law review article and then they're on to their next issue. Now, of course, that excludes, of course, all of the academicians in this room. <laughs> uh, and, and in this case, I really need to single out Peter Yazzie, who has really been willing to get in the trenches and sort of you know, because, again, part of it is, is, is when you think about the process of, of uh, 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 w when you're lobbying an issue, you often have to go from office to office to office and say the same story over and over again. And, and again, that requires manpower, it requires perseverance. Again, academicians, again, especially if once you've written your law review article and you've worked out the issue, I mean, it, it's boring. You're on to the next topic. But, but again, the trench warfare, it can't, you can't do that. You have to sort of sit there and you have to keep on keep at it. And, and again, I think that that's, uh, again, when you have large economic interests who can hire their army of lobbyists, you're, they're in a position to just keep at it. And if they don't get it this Congress, they get it at the next Congress. And if it's not the next Congress, it's the Congress after that. But public interest groups who have to worry about the funding for it, they have to worry about the grants, they have to worry about all these other problems, it, it's very difficult to sustain that incredible level of interest. Uh, but, but there's probably no more important quality to succeeding in, you know, it's just like Woody Allen's uh, line that, you know, 90% of life is just being there. I think lobbying, a lot of that is, it's, it's the same thing. You gotta be there. And that just means, you know, you just keep on showing up and you keep on, you just, you just have to be relentless. Uh, and, and eventually that, that comes into play. And, and then I, just the flip side of it is, is one of the things that people are always talking about is, uh, and bemoaning is, you know, all the money that Hollywood spends. Uh, and yes, they do spend money, but what's the, the sort of the dark secret of, 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 of Washington is not that money matters, because it, it does matter, but it's that not very much money matters, meaning you don't need to get, you don't need to, be, to spend huge amounts of money to get the access. I mean, you, you know, you give a thousand bucks, you get to go to the same uh, cocktail party or the same fundraiser that the Disney lobbyists go to. I and mean, it's not that different. And so a relatively small amount of money can go a long way. Um, and, and so, yes, money matters, but it's not, it doesn't, doesn't need to be a lot of money. And I think certainly when you look at uh, the, the, now that you, on our side, as it were, on the library side, on the public interest side, you do have far more uh, uh, corporate interest than before you do have the internet companies and you have the consumer electronics companies and so forth, that, that therefore um, 
there is more money on our side, but I think that it's something that you know public interest groups and library groups also sometimes need to think about is, is, is using money a little bit more strategically perhaps. But the final point is, is uh, the other thing that, that's so critical in the lobbying game, and, and Mark alluded to this, is the issue of allies, that you have to, you have, to have allies. You have to work with other people. Uh, certainly the, the content folks do that. Um, often there'll be an interest that's really of interest only to the recording industry, but of course the motion picture studios will support it, and sometimes the, the business software alliance will support it if it's not too inimical to their interests. Uh, they, they scratch each other's backs, and I think that that's uh, a lesson that, that we've learned, and, and we have to do the same thing, and sometimes we support something that's really not of primary interest, but it's of secondary interest to us, but it's primary interest to an ally because we know that what comes around goes around it, that at some point they will support us too. So those are, those are just a couple of uh, observations that it is trench warfare uh, and, and, and that it's important to stick with it, uh, that, that money matters, but it, it doesn't require all that much money and there are also ways to counter the money. And finally, that, uh, that allies are, uh, are key to winning any battle. Thank you very much.